Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. It's time for another installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand and always joined by the great Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, great to see you today. Great to see you too, Joe. Along with our other co-host, Rich Lenkoff of Bryce, Downey, and Lenkoff. Rich, are you getting past the uh, Montreal Canadiens not winning the Stanley Cup yet? Very, very disturbing. Uh, <laughs> very difficult few weeks, but, uh, you know, we got hockey news we'll talk about later uh, from Joe Brand. And we'll explain why that's even more relevant now, but we'll, we'll save that till the end. But we got some exciting hockey news in town here. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll just get right into the first topic of uh, the Capitol riot sentencing. And with that, we bring in Professor, Professor Ian Weinstein of Fordham University. Professor, thank you so much for being here today. It's such a pleasure to be with you. So, Professor, today the House Select Committee that was formed to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol convened its first hearing hosting a panel of four police officers who had defended the building against a mob of Trump supporters. Reports from the hearing this morning are that the officer's testimony was both emotional and dramatic. Can you please fill us in on the latest from this morning's hearing? Um, As I understand it, uh, this morning, um, um, one of the officers became uh, quite emotional uh, in talking uh, about his experiences. Uh, I, I believe another officer uh, talked uh, very strongly about how uh, difficult it was for him uh, to, to hear those who would minimize um, the uh, events and talked uh, uh, about uh, the, the physical abuse um, he suffered. So I think that's the tenor of it. Professor, I know you've talked, you've written about uh, the charges that have been um, made in this case to the writers and uh, the difference between the prosecutors playing hardball with some and charging others with lesser crimes. Talk to us about how the prosecutors are going about sentencing this case, including, I mean, just recently, yesterday here in Illinois, we saw a couple from Joliet charged um, for being there. So talk to us about what, how the prosecutors are going about their, their work in this case. Well, um, you know, in uh, this set of cases, um, it's quite a large number of defendants. Um, and in that respect, it's a bit unusual. Um, And there's a pretty broad range of conduct. So uh, there are folks who uh, violated the law uh, by going on to prohibited, um, restricted ground at the Capitol. Um, It's kind of trespassing. Um, It's an offense. It's not a serious offense. Uh, And then there are uh, people who uh, I believe the evidence is going to show um, plotted with others and went there with the intent uh, of disrupting governmental functions with a readiness to assault police officers and other law enforcement, and who did uh, uh, assault the law enforcement officers. So it's a very broad range of conduct. And uh, so the, the first thing I'd note is that the, the, there's quite a wide, wide range of charges um, because there's quite a wide range uh, of conduct here. Um, and and it, it uh, and I think prosecutors are making it as they always do. Uh, to try and match the charges um, with um, the seriousness of the conduct, 
Um, you know, uh, I am a defense lawyer. Um, that's my orientation. So it is my view uh, that they often um, uh, uh, look uh, to make sure that they can bring um, the most serious charges that they can. And we can talk about whether that's the right approach or not. But it's all going to vary depending on their understanding of the conduct of individual defendants. So, Professor, can you maybe explain to our audience what you see as the approach that some of the judges are going to be taking? Um, some of them are going to, I think, look to the hardline approach in terms of sentencing, but I think some others are not. And I think it would be helpful for our listeners to understand what we're looking at here. Um, certainly, um, every judge has a predisposition. Uh, some tend to be more severe, some less severe. But I'm going to suggest that um, really the predominant factor uh, is um, almost always the conduct of the individual defendant and that defendant's history. So while individual judge makes a difference on um, the kinds of factors um, that uh, are going to make uh, for a much more severe sentencing in this set of cases are things like, um, is there evidence of prior planning or did it seem that the person uh, got caught up in the event? Um, is there evidence that the person destroyed uh, government property? Is there evidence uh, that the person uh, assaulted a police officer? And some of the police officers sustained very significant injuries. Uh, and um, no matter what a judge's predisposition, in my experience, um, if a defendant causes injury to a law enforcement officer, that is always uh, going to result in a longer sentence. Um, that is something that uh, I think virtually every federal judge um, takes very seriously. There are a number uh, of other factors we could talk about. The other thing I'd highlight is the defendant's um, prior contact with the system. So there are some folks who uh, have never uh, had a prior conviction. Um, that uh, is certainly a positive in terms of their sentencing for them from their point of view. And there are others um, who have um, prior convictions. That's a very significant aggravating factor. Uh, Professor, I know you are a past winner of the NALP Award of Distinction for Technology. So talk to our listeners about what a game changer, in this case, the sheer amount of both video there is and social media, right? And how that how that is a game changer in both prosecute in both charging and securing prosecutions in this case. And, and also how you would deal with that as a defense lawyer. I mean, at some point when your client is on tape walking through the Capitol with a flag or sitting on Nancy Pelosi's chair. There's only so much as a defense lawyer you can do, right? Well, you're certainly right uh, that uh, the volume of electronic evidence um, that we now see in federal cases um, uh, has totally changed uh, the dynamic um, compared to when I started uh, uh, with um, uh, federal cases quite a long time ago. And it's, it's a common feature uh, of almost every federal case. Uh, that um, uh, there are rings of electronic evidence. It may be government surveillance. It may be uh, the defendant's um, own social media posts. Um, uh, and, and we see this in many, many cases. Now, um, the, the particular thing you note, right, how do you deal with it uh, as a defense lawyer when um, uh, someone records themselves on the Capitol grounds? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, that certainly suggests to me that person at least didn't think they were doing anything wrong or had the idea that this was an okay thing to do in public, it, it certainly, um, you know, it makes a difference on um, whether they're there uh, streaming it uh, to their friends and family or whether the electronic evidence uh, is uh, on some uh, encrypted app uh, and they're planning with others. 
So, but, um, you know, that uh, my, defense, my, my client didn't think it was wrong. You can see how foolishly they acted defense. It's sometimes a bit mitigating, but honestly, in my experience, it, it doesn't get you very far. That's really interesting that, that I didn't think of it that way, really, that if you're videotaping yourself doing something like that, then it, you might argue as a defense lawyer that you lack the requisite mens rea to commit the crime. Um, and, and again, it's going to depend on the particular charges and, and how things develop. Um, but, um, you know, uh, uh, as, as, as we say in the criminal law trade, consciousness of guilt uh, is often uh, an important factor. So uh, if someone lies to the police in the investigation, well, that suggests that they knew they did something wrong, they had to lie. Um, on the other hand, um, if someone is completely straightforward, it can suggest uh, an innocent frame of mind. Now, I'm going to say in this case, um, it, it, uh, from what I've heard about the range of cases, it's plausible. And there were people, it seems quite clear, who really got caught up in the day. I mean, they were in a big crowd and they found themselves at the Capitol. Maybe they saw no trespassing sign. Um, you would think that most people would understand that there are restricted spaces there. Uh, and that depends on just what people did. But um, no matter how innocent um, one's initial intent, gee, if you end up uh, assaulting a police officer, um, you know, uh, uh, the fact that um, it may have happened, uh, uh, you may have developed uh, the, the, the interest or intent to beat up a police officer in a moment uh, is not much of a defense. So again, it, the conduct matters quite a bit there. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, thanks so much for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Continuing on the Legal Face-Off podcast here on WGN Radio, and we move to the topic of earlier this month, Illinois became the first state in the nation to mandate teaching Asian American history after Governor J.B. Pritzker signed the bill known as the TEACH Act. We have with us two of the legislators that helped sponsor that bill, State Representative Jennifer Gongershowitz of the 17th District in Illinois, and one of the first two Chinese Americans to serve in the Illinois General Assembly. Representative, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Along with State Senator Ram Vilivalam of the 8th District, the first Asian American elected to the Illinois State Senate. 
Senator, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks to you both. As uh, Joe mentioned, the Teach Act stands for the Teaching Equitable Asian American Community History. Uh, this makes Illinois the first state in the nation to uh, enact such a requirement. Why were you both uh, in favor of this? Why were you pushing this kind of legislation? Senator, let's start with you. Well, thank you. Thanks again for having us. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I want to be very clear that this was a community-led effort. It was a coalition of organizations uh, within and uh, from outside the Asian American community that have worked on this for uh, more than a year and a half, uh, really to ensure that Asian Americans, our, our contributions, our legacies, and some of the more horrific even the horrific uh, examples of in our history, our American history, are included uh, in our in our public schools, and that way, Asian American students, uh, about a hundred thousand of which are in Illinois, uh, are able to see themselves in our history, and also non-Asian American students are able to better understand who we are as a community and what our contributions have been as well. And so I am so proud to have been the Senate sponsor. And I have to say, it, I could not have asked for a better House sponsor and Representative Gon Gershowitz. Representatives, pick that up. Why were you so passionate about this piece of legislation? Yeah, well, you know, Asian Americans are part of the American fabric. Asian American history is American history, but we're often invisible. And what fills that gap when Asian Americans are missing from the classroom are all too often harmful stereotypes uh, that fill that void. And so teach fundamentally at its core is about building empathy. We cannot do better unless we know better. Condemnation alone uh, doesn't bring about change. We need action. And so Senator Villivalum and I asked our colleagues to do something about the rise in anti-Asian hate and violence. And that something was to fill that gap, to fill that void with education. Earlier this year, Governor Pritzker also signed into law uh, legislation uh, expanding the teaching of black history in schools. In 2019, he also signed a law requiring schools to include the contributions of LGBTQ individuals in history lessons. Why has it taken so long to correct some of the inaccuracies in education surrounding these groups? Representative, let's start with you, please. Well, I think, you know, fundamentally, the root cause of discrimination really is a lack of information, lack of empathy. And I think, frankly, it takes having people in the General Assembly uh, representative of these marginalized communities to fight for and advocate to be seen. Um, the Asian American community, like the LGBTQ plus community, has very often been invisible and has lacked for representation. It was not until 2016 that we had the first Asian American ever elected to the Illinois General Assembly. I was the second. Uh, Senator Villivalum was the third. And that makes a difference. Representation matters. Elections matter. Um, we're there and we're ensuring that our curriculum here in Illinois reflects the diversity of our communities. Senator Vili Vallon, picking up on that, the majority of Illinois students, about 53%, are now people of color. Uh, yet it seems like you would think of states like New York or California with more prominent, larger Asian American communities would be at the forefront of legislation like this. Um, why do you think Illinois is the leader in this issue, aside from, of course, the incredible work that you and your colleague have done? Uh, why is Illinois the leader in the nation on this kind of legislation? 
Well, it's, it's again, uh, a combination of the leadership and dedication from the Illinois General Assembly, uh, Governor Pritzker. And I will just say that, again, the, the it's a testament to the coalition of organizations that have been working on issues like this for a long time. Uh, and it's not just uh, Asian American organizations or Latino organizations or African American. It's everyone together that have been pushing uh, this concept of more inclusivity, more diversity, more equity, and not just saying, let's stop, let's, you know, stop at the rhetoric. We need to back it up with policy. And so that's why I think, you know, teach uh, is uh, the first uh, Asian American uh, history uh, unit in the entire country uh, is happening in Illinois. But that's also why you see other laws, like, for example, expanding Medicaid to undocumented seniors, right? It's it's a concept. It's a it's a mindset. And that's what um, as us as legislators, the administration, and again, our youth, our seniors, our immigrant families have stepped up, have come up with these ideas and help execute um, by advocating for them in Springfield. Representative, can you explain to our listeners briefly what an Illinois student may have learned about Asian American history before this act and what they will learn now going forward, given that it's been signed into law? You know, our research shows that very little has been taught in our classrooms about Asian American history. I myself am a graduate of Illinois public schools, and yet I learned nothing about the Chinese Exclusion Acts um, or about the internment of Japanese Americans in the 1940s until I was in law school. So teach is about making sure that the next generation of Asian Americans doesn't have to attend law school or do it, take a deep dive into their family's personal history to learn anything about Asian American history. And I think, you know, while Asian Americans have a long history of violence and exclusion in this country, we also have a history of being change agents, leaders. Um, Asian Americans were active in the fight for civil rights. So my hope is that by including Asian American stories and experiences, people will have a broader understanding of who we are as a community, and that will help build empathy and understanding about Asian Americans in the face of rising anti-Asian hate and violence. Last question here on Legal Face Off for both of you. We'll start with, we'll, we'll go back to you, Representative, and we'll end with the Senator. Uh, we have covered on this show, and there's certainly been well documented, a very disturbing rise in anti Asian hate crimes during the pandemic. In one study, uh, there were over 6,600 incidents of hate reported between March 2020 and March 2021. Do you see a correlation between the work that you've done on this legislation and lowering? Uh, this very troubling trend. Start with the representative, please. Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, Asian Americans have been scapegoated uh, in the in the pandemic, and that has absolutely led to a rise in anti-Asian hate and violence. This isn't the first time this has happened, and this is these are certainly not isolated incidents. But education is the best weapon that we have against ignorance. And so we fight um, this kind of lack of information, ignorance, with knowledge, education, and hopefully over time that builds empathy and understanding. I think it's important that we be able to see one another to do better. Senator? Well, it's, I, I ditto, echo. I echo what Representative Gon Gershowitz ha has just stated. It's unfortunate. Uh, you know, we see, uh, we've seen a rise 
uh, and anti-Asian American hate at different points throughout our history, right? I remember back to when I was a teenager and after September 11th happened, and that was a tough and, and difficult period for uh, Muslim Americans, Sikh Americans, anyone that looked like me or them uh, in America. And again, we saw that over the last year uh, as it relates to uh, the pandemic and, and where blame was placed. And education is a structural uh, way to uh, address this issue, um, whether you're in Monroe County down down south in our state or you're in Chicago, you're going to, as if you, were, if you attend a public school, uh, be taught a unit of Asian American history. And that is incredibly important, incredibly um, uh, groundbreaking. Uh, however, it does that's not where we stop, right? We need to continue to educate. We need to continue to have events uh, and let folks know who the community is, what we stand for, what our contributions have been. And we're going to continue to chip away at the discrimination and the anti-Asian American hate. Uh, and that's what I think we should all set up as a goal. Senator Vili Vallum, Representative Gong Gershwitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. The American Bar Association is proposing new accrediting standards for law schools that would make them more race conscious, more politically correct, and less intellectually diverse. With that, on the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, we bring in Professor John O. McGinnis, who teaches constitutional law at Northwestern Pritzker Law School and uh, also a former clerk of the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C. Professor McGinnis, thanks so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. Yeah, Professor, as your Wall Street Journal op-ed piece uh, mentions, and as Joe just talked about, in May, the ABA's Council on a Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the bar proposed revisions to the ABA standards, um, specifically the revision to Rule 206 would significantly alter the responsibility of law school to achieve, quote, diverse and, quote, equitable environments. You said in your Wall Street Journal piece that the proposal should fail on the merits. Why is that? Well, uh, I think the reasons really are twofold. Uh, one is that uh, the ABA, I think, is using the latest uh, crisis, political crisis, to raise costs and also uh, restrict uh, the diversity of ideas at law schools. Well, how it will raise costs, it's going to require, one of the things it requires is all sorts of um, uh, new uh, requirements to uh, uh, figure out how different groups are doing at law schools. So it's going to increase what I would call the diversity bureaucracy, and that's a cost to law schools. And that makes it less affordable for, uh, for people. The other problem is that a lot of these requirements are going to make law schools less uh, ideologically diverse. There's already a problem in American law schools that uh, law professors lean very sharply to the left. 
this uh, proposal, which makes it all, focuses entirely on diversity with respect to race, gender, and adds gender identity, is going to uh, increase the pressure to hire by ethnicity, and that's and, and other characteristics that are likely to actually increase uh, the left-wing skew of law schools, because there's been evidence that um, uh, such uh, professors hired on this basis are more left-wing even than the average law professor. So, Professor, your op-ed piece also points out that many states have laws prohibiting public universities from considering race and sex in hiring at admissions. So does the ABA proposal then basically break the law? Uh, it doesn't break the law itself. I think it uh, may encourage others to break the law. What it says is that uh, these laws are no uh, justification for not engaging in the diversification uh, requirements. And of course, these laws do make it impossible uh, ultimately to hire people on the basis of their race, uh, ethnicity, or gender often. And so I think they are a constraint on diversifying law schools. So it puts the law schools, I think, in a very difficult position and invites lawlessness. So Professor, if not by these means, how should law schools go about achieving diversity if that is in fact a laudable goal? Maybe it's not in your opinion, but if it is, how should law schools achieve that? Well, law schools uh, completely uh, invite people of all uh, uh, races, ethnicities to apply for professors and indeed for admissions and can still apply a single standard. That's, uh, I think, the best way of proceeding. The best way is uh, recruitment to make sure that you've uh, recruited uh, and, and been open to people of all ethnicities and um, uh, uh, races and, 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 and genders. And I think there's just no doubt that law schools today are very welcoming of people of all the kinds of different backgrounds. The one area I have to confess that law schools, some law schools are less welcoming are people, particularly social conservatives. I think it'd be very hard to be hired at a law school today as someone who uh, has some doubts about things like uh, same-sex marriage. So, Professor, in response to your op-ed, Patricia Lee Rifo, who is the American Bar Association president, said that the ABA has steadfastly committed to eliminating bias and enhancing inclusion in the legal profession and in the justice system. The current legal education standards reflect those objectives. Do you think that's an adequate response? No, I don't think it's an adequate response for some of the reasons I've just given, because, of course, uh, we should include everyone in a, in a fair uh, manner, but there's no indication that there's any kind of discrimination against uh, people of different races or ethnicities at law schools. It'd be very surprising if it were the case. Many of the law professors make their law livings or are dedicated to stamping out such discrimination. The atmosphere on campus is extremely welcoming. Uh, for people of all ethnicities and uh, races, and 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 uh, and uh, so I just don't think that is a uh, 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 the primary problem in legal education. I think we should certainly have a requirement of non-discrimination that should be enforced rigorously. The problem with these standards is that they likely to lead to more discrimination and actually uh, more discrimination, I think, against uh, or at least more less diverse ideas uh, 
in the legal economy. That's the real problem in the legal economy at, at the moment. The legal economy skews very much to one ideology and very much to one political party. And that's a real problem regardless of your own positions. Because of course, law is a, is a, is a profession where you have to learn to argue both sides. You have to argue against people with uh, positions with which one uh, disagrees. And that's going to be advanced by having a diversity of ideas and, and, uh, in, the, in the profession, rather than focusing on, uh, on, on the kinds of diversity the ABA is. Take a look at Professor McGinnis's work in the Wall Street Journal with the headline, Why the Lawyers' Cartel is Pushing for Woke Law Schools. Professor McGinnis of Northwestern, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving on on the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio, and we've got a sneak preview of August's Inside Out article courtesy of Chicago Lawyer Magazine. The great Tina Martini and David Sussler discussing the benefits of a multi-generational workforce and bridging that generational gap. Column 96, welcome back to uh, David Sussler. We're almost at, almost at the century mark. How many years back are we going for Inside Out? Uh, 11 and a half years almost, wow. yeah, right? April 2010 was our inaugural column. Yeah. Wow. Well, we, started, we started it behind the scenes in February of 2010. 96. So pub- published in April. Yeah. Do a big blowout for uh, what, maybe October? Or are they every other Woo! month? Every other month or so. This so. Will yeah. be, uh, slowed down. Later in in the year, but uh, congratulations. That's quite an accomplishment. Let's jump right into uh, multi-generational workforces. As we all return to the office, uh, some quicker than others, as we see David is back in the office. Um, it's important, I think, uh, your article points out the importance of working with others and especially the younger generation. You've talked, both of you, extensively on our podcast about your mentoring efforts and your uh, assistance in bringing younger attorneys up. How do you deal with the younger generation, especially as, David, that younger generation seems to be getting younger as we seem to be getting older? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, one of the great gifts and benefits of mentoring, uh, you know, college kids, law students, and young lawyers is um, really learning about the, the communication and work styles of young attorneys. That's, 
probably one, one of the greatest gifts that I get from my mentees is learning how learning their different work styles, learning what they need, realizing how just how different I am from them in many ways regarding work styles and communication. So that's how I deal with it. I listen, I listen, and I learn. Tina, as one gets uh, older and more advanced in their careers, you tend to become, I think, more set in your ways. At least that's what conventional wisdom says. How do you avoid getting so set in your ways that you can't engage with the younger generation in the, in the work setting? Well, I think a lot of it, it depends on just staying connected with them and looking for opportunities to get to know them. I mean, the simple fact of the matter when you break it down is that as we get older, Rich, um, you know, and as we, you know, start talking about retirement in a very different way than we did like 10 or 20 years ago, the fact of the matter is that we need people of the younger generation to help us get our work done. Um, putting aside that it's like diversity conversation, that it's the right thing to do, it's essential to a business. The bottom line is we need to have the younger talent on our files in order to have the leverage we need and to staff things in a way that is appropriate for our clients because our clients are doing the same thing we are and we need to maintain um, being nimble and being able to um, have a workforce that reflects our clients' demographics. David, pick up on that and, and pick up specifically on how you bridge the gap. Obviously, there's always going to be some distinction between how younger attorneys work and how older, more experienced attorneys work. But your article touches on some examples of bridging that gap. Give our listeners and viewers one example of doing so. Sure. Um you have to put away the mindset that, well, that's just how we've always done it. That That's, I think, is a really important place to start and be open to learning new ways to do it. Uh, but, you know, going to what Tina said, that's how, that's how we as lawyers best serve our clients, whether you're in-house or in private practice, is adapting to new ways to do it. So you've got to force yourself to be open to doing it differently. You know, during the pandemic, and again, we've covered this topic extensively, but it seems to be very relevant to your article. It's been very difficult to get to know your colleagues, uh, especially younger ones with whom you would otherwise enjoy a face-to-face relationship and mentor them. And so much of that, you know, is dependent on being in person. How hard is it to bridge that generational gap when you can't meet people? I mean, for example, I've hired at least four or five attorneys since the pandemic started I've never met many of them in person. Uh, it's very difficult to bridge that generational gap when you're doing it only by Zoom. I completely agree with you, Rich. Um, that being said, what I find really interesting, and I don't want to characterize a generation or generations of people as all being the same, but I mean, um, David and I are really good friends with one of my mentees at McDermott. David is a friend of hers as well. And the way that we communicate with her, um, we've seen her a couple of times in person, but it's been mainly Zoom as well as texting. And what's really interesting is that what we did as kids and as younger um, attorneys, Rich, in terms of the in-person meetings, I think that the younger generations don't necessarily see that as critical. Um, They like to communicate through um, through Zooming they, or, or FaceTime, they also like to communicate through texting. And sometimes they would prefer to do that 
over a phone conversation, for example. So I think that there are great ways to create connections with people as long as you show that you're caring and you engage with them. I think the, the medium through which you do it doesn't necessarily matter as much as long as you convey that you care and that you are interested, invested in their future. Now, listen, we always end off our discussions with some musical discussion because you're both huge music fans and, uh, of course, both big Bruce Springsteen fans. Music is a great way, I find, to bridge the generational gap. You know, you're always trying to find a common denominator to people who are of a different generation, and music is a great one. On the other hand, unfortunately, not every young person know, enjoys, or even knows some of the music that I like or that you like. So how do you find a common denominator over music? I mean, I, I bet most of the younger attorneys that we're talking about, you know, they've heard of Bruce Springsteen, but they probably have not been to his shows, certainly not to many shows like we have. How do you use music maybe to bridge this musical generational gap, David? You know, it's funny. Sometimes when we're interviewing candidates for the ACC Chicago's Diversity Law Student Summer Internship Program, music will come up and, and I will ask, have you ever heard of Bruce Springsteen? And, you know, it's probably 75% no, oh, 25% no. yes. And then we laugh. And, and But sometimes I have conversations. If people are really interested in music, they're willing to branch out. And so I suggest songs and artists to them and they'll suggest songs and artists to me, uh, one of our former interns who I've become good friends with over the year, I remember a few years ago, we went out to dinner and had a long conversation about rap music. And he he helped me understand it in a way that I really never thought about before. And I started listening in a different way because I was never a, a big rap music fan. But now I appreciate it in a completely different way because I have a human element to relate it to. So that's how there's always a way to bridge the gap if you're willing to listen and try something new. I think yeah. if you actually ask um, them what their parents listen to or what their aunts or uncles listen to, there's usually yeah. a good segue there. I mean, it's just the fact of the matter, given what our age is. And, and that's usually a good segue into a, oh, I know that artist or, oh, I really like them, too. And that's a great way to start engaging them as, as yeah. old as that may make us feel. Well, yeah, I, I've done the same thing. I think you're right with the 75% Springsteen uh, step, but <laughs> I have taken many of my associates, at least three that I could think of over the years, to their first ever Bruce Springsteen concert, which was a great way to bridge the gap. And also, uh, one of my most recent hires, it turns out that she is a huge Springsteen fan, even though she's only a couple of years out of law school, because as you mentioned, her Tina, her mom was a big Springsteen fan growing up. And in fact, she was on the first podcast of my Trial by Vinyl podcast where we covered Bruce Springsteen. She was you know, very, very knowledgeable and has been to many shows. So you never know. That should be the opening question to all interviews. Which Springsteen track off The Wild and Innocent is your favorite and why? <laughs> uh, Kitty's Back, followed by New York City Serenade. <laughs> well, any, any, any uh, interview, we would say, what is The Wild and Innocent? <laughs> We digress. Joe? Yeah, I'm not going to categorize myself as <laughs> as the young uh, pool, but uh, I do know who Bruce Springsteen is. I am a fan. And honestly, if I if someone were to ask my favorite band, it's it's the Beatles. So if that gives you, you any any hope for the future generation, then then so be it. Sus, great, great to see you, man. How you been? 
Great. Great to see you. Thanks for having me back. Always fun to be on LFO. As always, we'll move on here on the Legal Faceoff podcast coming up next. It's time for the Legal Faceoff podcast edition where we get to the legal grab bag here on WGN Radio, along with Rich Lenkov, Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand, our two esteemed guests. We start with Christina Bitzer, editor-in-chief of NIU Law Review and judicial extern of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District in Illinois. Christina, first-timer, how you doing? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. And not a first-timer, a repeat guest, Ashley Alvarez of the Legislative Council at the Chicago City Council. Ashley, great to see you again. Yes, uh, thank you. So, Rich, is it Rich? I believe it's Rich. No, it's Tina. We start with Tina today. This is what we call working on the fly. Uh, Tina, the Mississippi Mississippi Attorney General is asking the Supreme Court to overturn a pending case challenging the state's ban on abortions after a certain time frame. Yeah, Joe. So back in May, listeners will remember that we had a lot of discussion around the Supreme Court and cases that they're going to be hearing in 2022. Um, The Supreme Court announced that it would hear Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a frontal attack on Roe versus Wade, as well as the Casey case that came out actually when I was in law school, um, scary, early 1990s is that when that case came out. So last week, the Mississippi Attorney General, Lynn Fitch, filed her brief arguing that those two cases as precedent are egregiously wrong and that there's nothing in the Constitution or its history that supports abortion. The Mississippi law bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, except for medical emergencies or for severe abnormalities of the fetus. Fitch argued that the judicial president of Roe v. Wade and Casey is based on old science and is undercut by more recent science about how a fetus takes on human form sometimes months before viability. She also argues, not surprisingly, that this debate is better left to the states. And clearly, Rich, as we've talked about with a number of our guests over the past couple of months, this is definitely one of the primary cases to watch in the next term. Yeah, it's a trend. Obviously, um, in some of the southern states, we've seen this trend over the last year, year and a half of an attack on abortion rights. And obviously, it's also coinciding with the conservative majority in the Supreme Court that's been well covered on our show. Um, It's now a 6-3 majority uh, conservative bloc. And unless Stephen Breyer, you know, steps down fairly quickly, uh, the midterm elections are very soon. And if the Senate wins back the majority, then Mitch McConnell has already said he will not hear uh, confirmation hearings for a Biden appointee to the court until the end, until the next president is seated, which is just mind blowing, right? That now the standard is suddenly two years. We've seen the standard continue just based on who's in, in office, right? So uh, we'll see in the next term when they do take up some of these cases how this conservative bloc is going to deal with these attacks on. Roe v. Wade, um, you know, conventional wisdom and a lot of liberals are fearing that Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch will, uh, you know, uphold these bans on abortion. I don't know. I'm not so clear on that. As we've covered extensively in our show, I don't think that 
these new conservative justices are, you know, dyed in the wool, uh, by the book conservatives. I think to their credit, they have surprised us in many cases, but we'll see. But, um, Ashley, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, uh, rather disturbing trend, uh, to many, I, I, I assume you've got some strong opinions on this case. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's really sad to see. And it's something that I think, you know, as women, as a woman that we're like constantly battling this, I think since the Trump administration was relatively, but with this case in particular, I mean, they originally came into Mississippi and were like, we're not trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. We just want to make sure that our law is being able to be enforced, but you cannot have that law without overturning Planned Parenthood, without turning Roe v. Wade. So now we're in this, you know, this conflict of, Obviously, that that is that's is what they're asking for. So it's coming in hindering on viability. I think the Supreme Court's been moving very incrementally lately, and so hopefully they maintain that, and and we can have you know the, the right justice here. And I guess my outside message to women at this point is to move to Illinois. Uh, Governor Pritzker just signed a birth control over the counter bill, and we're friendlier. We're here for women. Uh, so stay on Mississippi, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Christina, you're in law school. You're studying some of these cases that we've talked about. What's your perspective on on this development? Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting. Um, I think it's interesting from a constitutional law as well as a health law perspective. Because, you know, if you look at, I think, I'm not recalling if it was in Roe or if it was in Casey, where the court basically said, you know, it's not our place to determine when life begins. It's a, it's a medical decision to ter- determine when life begins and not a judicial decision. So I think it's really interesting in the historical context that this is coming up today, especially um, in conjunction with some other healthcare autonomy challenges that are coming to the judiciary. And I think as this, as this moves its way, um, as this as this comes up to the court, as this, as the court hears this, and as some of these other healthcare autonomy cases, and by that, of course, I mean the vaccine mandate cases um, come up, it'll be interesting to see how the judiciary um, does opine in the healthcare realm where it has, you know, kind of avoided doing so before. Moving on, most of us know about Sasha Barrett Cohen's antics and the way he conducts his interviews. Well, former U.S. Senate candidate Roy Moore, Tina, uh, brought it to a lawsuit, and a federal judge has dismissed it $95 million against the former comedian. That is correct. This is actually, of all the fun stories we do on Legal Grab Bag, this is definitely one of my most favorite ones that we've done in a while. So as you said, Joe, um, Judge John Cronin from the Southern District of New York dismissed this lawsuit earlier this month. Um, The former Alabama Chief Justice and U.S. Senate candidate Roy Moore had sued Sasha Baron Cohn for $95 million um, for intentional infliction of emotional distress He also claimed that he had defamed him and committed fraud. Um, This all goes back to um, Sasha Baron Cohen's show, Who is America?, where he um, takes on various personalities as he interviews people with varying um, political views. Um, As I was doing my research for this story, it was very reminiscent to me of the old Ashton Kutcher show, Punked. That just came to mind as I was reading this story. So in this situation, Cohn was disguised as a fictional Israeli anti-terrorist expert named Aaron Morad and had interviewed 
um, Moore and his wife when they were in Washington, D.C. to uh, receive an award for their support of Israel. And in this bit, Cohn began to describe technology that he said the Israeli military uses to combat terrorism. And it was this wand type device that he started waving and it started beeping when Cohn said that um, that the device uncovers both tunnels used by terrorists as well as enzymes secreted by pedophiles. Well, apparently Moore didn't think this was funny. I think a lot of us remember when he ran for the Senate several years ago that there were allegations of sexual misconduct, particularly with underage girls. Um, But one of the things that Moore forgot when he filed this lawsuit is that he had actually um, agreed to a standard consent agreement and waiver um, for participating in this. And he specifically waived away the rights to bring these types of claims. There's also something known as the First Amendment that uh, actually um, ends up making this case, while somewhat comical, um, one that was decided um, in, in Cohn's favor. So, Rich, this one I think is a pretty entertaining one. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, uh, the waiver says it all. I mean, it's a relatively straightforward legal issue. Don't let the number fool you. You know, I, I produced a couple of films here and there, and the uh, first thing you do when you have talent on camera is to get them to sign a waiver. They're pretty easily, you know, findable. You can download one off the internet for free and you have to get someone's waiver. You know, for intellectual property reasons, Tina, that you can't use someone's image and likeness and voice and and all that without their consent. And when they sign the waiver, they're giving you the right to disseminate that. Pretty obvious, you know, basic contract. And then he turns around and sues Sessioner and Cohen. Ridiculous. I mean, you sign the waiver, you know, it's a pretty easy case to dismiss. But if have you all seen the series? Uh, it's Who is America? It's like way funnier than Borat. And I think Borat is like the funniest thing on this planet. Who is America is literally the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um, and this character that Sasha Baron Cohen plays, the Israeli anti-terrorism expert, is just hilarious. So um, I, uh, I recommend viewing this, uh, this, this show ASAP. But Ashley, I mean... You know, watch what you're signing, I guess, is the, is the takeaway here. Right. And and like also know who you're signing with. We're about to cover a story in a, in a second that's similar. But what do you expect when you're agreeing to be in a Sasha Baron Cohen film? Right. Yeah, I think it's that. And it's it's good lawyering. I mean, the waiver really it included everything. Uh, I think almost all the claims that he brought forward. So. He needs a lawyer at this point. I think this should be a lesson for, you know, Mr. Moore over there. And that's that's really at the end of the day why we should read. Yeah. And Christina, it's interesting because you always see defamation lawsuits like this. And it's all you always wonder, how do you come up with ninety five million dollars? By the way, your name kind of is uh, a symbol for many Americans of, you know, being someone who's not quite on the up and up. Um, so, you know, there's the question of damages as well. Yeah, I, I think that the biggest lesson learned, as everybody said, is that read your contract, look at the exculpatory language. And when you're being interviewed by somebody, really, do they look like Sasha Baron Cohen? Do they at all resemble Borat? Um, maybe have them have a take a test phase of just asking them to say very nice. I mean, really, I mean, it's. It's uh, watch out who you're interviewing with because if your interviewer is wearing a singlet, it's probably yeah. a pretty good, pretty good sign that things are uh, yeah, not quite what they seem. Yeah, 
One of my other favorite characters he plays is, is it Ali G? I, I think. Yeah, the Ali G show, the best. The yeah. Fantastic. He's, he's interviewing the historian who's telling him about this very important person who's, who's got a, a bust, you know, the head with the torso and that's it. And he's like, oh, yeah, very interesting. And how did he survive without any arms or legs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if, if any any interviews start with questions like those, um, that's that's probably, like you said, maybe be a little skeptical. Uh, with the Summer Olympics going on, going in Tokyo, the U.S. women's soccer team is making headlines multiple ways. They're appealing the dismissal of their gender discrimination lawsuit, Tina, saying it was flawed on legal reasoning. Yes. So they continue to go strong in Tokyo. Um, and so far, this appeal is moving forward. Um, our listeners will remember we've covered this story a couple of times over the past couple of years. Um, the women's national team filed um, in 2019, a lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation seeking $66 million in damages under the Equal Pay Act. They allege gender discrimination and compensation, um, as well as other issues relating to playing conditions. Um, that was thrown out last year, um, and they have since appealed. And last Friday, they filed an opening brief saying that it was based on flawed reasoning. Um, so what's interesting about this is that obviously it's getting a lot of attention. Um, their, their position is that the women's soccer players have to work harder than the men's soccer players and to get the same kind of pay. Um, and it's not equal pay and therefore it violates the law. Um, so, Rich, yeah, this is just a story for us to continue watching, one that we've been following for a couple of years now. Yeah, I mean, I think the big benefit of this lawsuit and the appeal is that it continues to put the very important issue of gender equity and gender pay equity specifically on the forefront. Now, I personally don't disagree with the dismissal of this particular lawsuit for lots of reasons that we've talked about before. I think you know, got to look at these cases on their merits, and in my opinion, the judge did the right thing in this particular case for lots of reasons. You know, for example, the supply and demand of, of this particular product. But the bigger picture is, yeah, there's a huge disparity. There continues to be. We saw the example. Um, was it in the bubble? Uh, Joe, remind me. Was it the, the the men's basketball team versus the women's basketball team facilities? And the women were training with what looked like an elementary school. You know, they had a couple of pieces of equipment, and the men were flush with like, you know, professional equipment. And then once that hit social media, that got remedied. But for sure, this is an issue that needs fixing right away. I'm not sure this particular lawsuit was uh, was the right avenue. But uh, Christina, where do you stand on, on this appeal? You know, I, I really value your comments because um, honestly, I didn't I didn't know a heck of a lot of this about a lot about this suit rather coming into it. So um, really, I do. I do value your your input on this, Rich, about about this, because my initial reaction, honestly, was let them let them proceed to a factual hearing, let them proceed to a factual inquiry um, rather than just, you know, dismissing it. I'm assuming it was it was it um, was kicked out on a, a motion to dismiss was. So um, I, uh, I again, that was my initial that was my initial take. But, um, you know, hearing your point, that makes a lot of sense. Ashley, what are your thoughts on this lawsuit? I'm going to push back a little bit, uh, Rich. I actually do not agree with you at all. So, um, That's why they call it face-off. Let's go. <laughs> so I actually think that the supply and demand, and I've had this conversation uh, quite often, 
of how you know the the, the um, barrier between women to, to reach and have that access of attention of media of of opportunity of pay I think is all related to your supply and demand I think that if we started promoting and actually giving the same attention to women that men get um, they're winning more they should have this they definitely are, are bringing home more trophies more opportunities than the, any of the men's teams are currently. So I think in this space, if we actually showcase that, if we actually give the same exact equal representation, then the supply and demand will follow. I mean, we can live in an age where young boys want women jerseys. Um, I don't think it's too hard and too far-fetched. We just need people to kind of challenge what's currently going on so that we can raise those standards and, and get that equality. I agree with that. I actually agree that when you think about it, um, to your point, women, the U.S. women's soccer team is so much more popular than the men's. I mean, I don't know that anyone can name. I certainly can't name anyone on the men's team, but we could all name three or four members, at least of the women's soccer team. Um, And, you know, that uh, compared to the fact that they're not getting paid the same, obviously is a huge disparity that, uh, you know, I, I think should be remedied for, for sure. So I agree with you on that point. Um, let's keep moving, Joe. Well, yeah. And as we record right now, earlier today, the U S women's soccer team ended in a nil nil tie with Australia. So, so zero zero is also the amount of clothes that were being worn at a certain Martha vineyard homeowner cottage, uh, out there as a settlement was reached in the case, um, renting out the cottage to members in the adult film industry, Rich. Yeah, this was a, a suit in Boston, federal court. And basically it comes down to a the owner of the house in, in Martha's Vineyard, which is, you know, one of the more upscale parts of the country, rented her house to a company called Mile High Media. I'll just let that name sort of sit there for a second. Um, and she claims that the company violated the rental agreement. Um, and she said that when she realized that there was porn being shot on the house, she was distressed. She said, I felt empty, cold, and dead. There were strangers' belongings hanging in the closets, rotting food left in the kitchen, visions of what I had seen on the internet popping into my mind. Of course, she watched the film. She had to watch the film, she says, to realize what was going on. But, you know, I guess sort of similar to Judge Roy Moore, uh, Tina, it's like, what did you think would happen? You rented your house to a porn company. Like, it doesn't, you know, when I rent a property from an owner, I spend hours looking into their background, looking into the house, looking at comments, looking at reviews. You're telling that this woman rented a multi-million dollar house in Martha's Vineyard and didn't take five seconds to Google them? Google them. I encourage everyone to Google Mile High. And, you know, if you click, yes, you're over 18, you will see things that you will not unsee. It's a porn site. So, you know, it's a it's just a classic example of someone dumb who is using misusing the legal process. Just like Roy Moore. Listen, read the document before you sign it. It's Sasha Baron Cohen. In this case, what did you think would happen when you rented your house to a porn company? They were making porn. That's what they one should thing, have done. One like, thing did I did think? not have a chance to do, Rich, was to actually read the rental agreement to see if they were, in fact, in breach. I mean, if the rental agreement said thou shall not film porn in this establishment or in this house, then then she has every right to be 
um, you know, suing them for breach of contract. How specific I just, I've never seen right? a lease that says that, though. I can tell you that. How specific do you think it was? I mean, was it like, yes, four people in the sex seat are OK, but not five? <laughs> I mean, where, where do you draw the line? But um, yeah, I mean, I guess they use some of the titles are not maybe as bad as some other titles could have been. But some of the titles allegedly filmed here are uh, Forgive Me, Father, Volume 2. Such a the first one was so popular that they came up with Forgive Me Father Part Two and then Daddy's Big Boy, uh, you know, according to the complaint. But know what you're getting into before you sign your lease. Ashley, what do you think of this, the Pornhouse case? I think moving forward, her contracts are gonna look a lot different. <laughs> um, I honestly I'm I'm baffled that she was surprised and that she didn't Google. I think um, across all spectrums, I think personal and professionally, you should Google. That's it. A, a lot of things will be helpful. Some not, you know, you can yeah. find a middle balance and know your way around what's going on. Well, it's interesting, Christina, that what bothered her was the rotting food left in the kitchen and belongings hanging in the closet. Nothing yeah. else apparently was yeah. no. you know, the, uh, the massive amount of group sex yeah. In, in in her kitchen was a problem, but God forbid there was old food. Yes, that's that's not the issue. That's where you draw the line. That's worth a lawsuit. Yes, that's not what's precipitating millions in damages, according to the article. It's definitely the food and the people's clothes. No, um, not your typical B Airbnb guests for sure. <laughs> um yeah, I, I I was I agree with Tina. I, I would like to see what the rental agreement is looks like and if uh, no group sex, no porn films is now going to be a standard clause and and for agreements going forward. Sorry, I was looking. I was a little distracted getting a, a sneak preview for Forgive Me, Father, Volume Three, coming soon, coming soon to theater near you, Joe. Well, not quite a mile high into the air, but uh, 12 feet into the air stood an inflatable Scabby the Rat outside an RV trade show in Indiana, Tina, and the National Labor Relations Board has, has ruled a union did not violate the law by using it. Yeah, well, Scabby the Rat, just like a few other folks like, I don't know, Alan Dershowitz, um, you know, Avenatti, you know, Gloria Allred, Scabby the Rat has made several appearances on our show. And so we couldn't pass up this opportunity to talk about how Scabby is living another day based on the NLRB decision from last week. Um, it was a case involving a union that had displayed Scabby at the entrance of an RV trade show in Indiana. The International Union of Operating Engineers had put Scabby up to try to shame a vendor, which was an RV supply company um, that does business with a company that uses non-union labor. Um, as all of us lawyers here know, and maybe Joe, you've learned from us, the NLRA prohibits unions from trying to coerce or threaten parties to boycott a company involved in a labor dispute. And so it was that act that was the basis for this. And so Scabby has lived another day. Um, he was found to not be coercive. The minority opinion was that he is an ominous presence, all 12 feet of him. So um, I don't know. I mean, all you have to do is go to Rich's house on uh, on Halloween. And I think there's a lot more scarier things on Rich's front yard than there is looking at Scabby the Rat in front of a conference hall. But I don't think it, even to, it doesn't even have to be Halloween. <laughs> the front yard. If the First Amendment means nothing, uh, Ashley, it means that you should be able to display. 
a huge inflatable rat outside a business. No? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think it falls in line. I don't think it's very threatening. It, it's definitely a symbolism of something, but you know, in, in the manner that it was being used, I think that's fair game. He's almost an attendee at that point. I, I couldn't figure out a, a good segue with this. Uh, just, <laughs> I don't know. I, I we live in a day now where you fill up your gas on your own, and apparently in New Mexico, you, uh, gas station operators can now be liable for selling fuel to drivers they know or have reason to know are intoxicated. So what, if they also, while getting gas, get a six pack too? Cause uh, you can pretty much get gas pretty discreetly. Yeah, back in 2011, uh, early morning hours, right before New Year's Eve 2011, uh, Andy Denny was intoxicated when he ran out of gas, walked to a gas station early in the morning. Uh, the first, at first the clerk refused to sell him gas because he appeared intoxicated. He then agreed to sell him a gallon of gas. Uh, he then took the gas to his car, drove back to the gas station, bought another nine gallons of gas. Uh, he crossed the center line after he left the gas station and he killed uh, an individual in a collision um, who then the estate then brought a lawsuit resulting in this opinion. And the court said that uh, under the doctrine of negligent entrustment of chattel, not cattle, but chattel, as Christina learn, is learning about in law school, a commercial gasoline vendor owes to a third party using the roadway a duty of care to refrain from selling them gasoline when that vendor knows or should know that that party is intoxicated. Basically, they said that providing gasoline to a drunk driver is like providing car keys to a drunk driver. So at first, right, it seems like kind of a frivolous lawsuit. And where does it end, right? On the other hand, I think these cases come down, rightfully so, to to what degree did the person know, person selling the gas know that the driver was intoxicated? No different, I agree, that if a bartender serves someone who is clearly inebriated, right? It's not uncommon and it's not unreasonable to assume that someone who is responsible for selling an instrument like gasoline should also have the responsibility to not sell someone who is clearly intoxicated. Now, how do you know that? Of course, the problem comes in. How, how does a, the average gas station attendant who's behind the glass, it's 3 a.m., maybe they're asleep, maybe they whatever. How are they supposed to know that someone's drunk, right? In this case, I think it turned on the fact that it seemed pretty clear that this person was intoxicated. So it's an easy case. The harder case, of course, will be, are you now imposing a duty not just to not sell gasoline to someone intoxicated, but that that person behind the glass is supposed to be a detective somehow? Are they supposed to give that person a breathalyzer? Are they supposed to administer a field sobriety test to a customer? Is that reasonable? Probably not. Tina, what are your thoughts on this case? Well, I completely agree with you, Rich, that this one case, I think was a pretty... Um, pretty clear. It was pretty clear that this person was intoxicated, but I think it's a very slippery slope and it'll be interesting to see how this case continues to get interpreted and is being used as precedent in cases in the future. I think New Mexico is the second state. I believe Tennessee is the first state that has laws like this. And I think it's going to be really tough and a very slippery slope. Like where do you draw the line because I don't think it's reasonable to expect gas station attendants to do a field sobriety test or to administer a breathalyzer test. And so some people are really good at hiding 
their intoxication. Other people, they have half a drink and they act as if they've had 10. So I think it's going to be really difficult with some of these cases. There's going to be gray. Yeah, 100%. I, you know, I represent lots of retailers. And to now think that there's a duty of a retailer to determine whether one is intoxicated and then not sell that person. I mean, that's just, that's, that's nuts, right? I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, uh, Christina, what are your thoughts on, on this apparent new duty created by the New Mexico court? Yeah, I, I share I share the same sentiments as, as you and Tina. I think it's going to be difficult for them to ascertain who is intoxicated and how exactly do you do that. Um, I also think it's going to be interesting from a pay at the pump perspective. Um, how do you how do you enforce that when you when you don't have an intent an attendant um, attending to the individual purchasing gas? I think it's interesting, um, you know, from a negligent entrustment standpoint. When you're handing, when an individual is handing their keys to somebody who is going to drive, they have an idea. They probably have an idea of what that person's been doing. They probably know that person or they have some idea of that, that person's prior activities prior to handing them their keys. With, with the guest situation, um, it, you just have to make a, a split second decision. Is this person that is coming before me that I've never seen before intoxicated? I don't know their everyday mannerisms. So um, it, it's, I think that's going to be very interesting because maybe there'll be somebody that somebody deems intoxicated that hasn't been drinking at all. They're just goofy. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think it's uh, in principle, I think it's, it's a, it's reasonable. Um, from a proximate cause standpoint, from a liability standpoint, but I think um, it, it may be difficult with the technicalities. Angry Yelp commenters beware. A couple is being sued for over $100,000 for reportedly giving bad reviews to a roofing company, Rich. Yeah, in Vancouver, Washington, uh, this couple, as you mentioned, is being sued for $112,000 after leaving a one-star Google review of a roofing company. Uh, this is Executive Roof Services. Uh, they said that after a couple of phone calls, their relationship turned bad and they gave a one-star review. And now they're being sued for uh, defamation, as you mentioned. And we've covered these cases before. Uh, you know, uh, we live in a review society. We mentioned earlier about, you know, checking out the places that you rent. And uh, that's what we all do, right? And we all rely on honest reviews from other people. Um, but this will have a chilling effect, right? If you are going to be sued, and even if those lawsuits are meritless, right? In this case, uh, it was dismissed. But the point is, you're going through uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, potentially, in legal fees. Um, and that is the point, right? The point of a plaintiff frequently is just to scare you off by filing a lawsuit, even though the lawsuit might end up being meritless. And again, the key as to whether this suit has merit is whether you did have some experience with the defendant and are reviewing it based on that. If you're simply going on Yelp and saying, I don't like this company and had no actual interaction with them, sure, that case might survive. But most of these cases don't survive because most of us don't do that, right? Who's going to, I mean, unless you have some other reason, which is possible, most of us post reviews of companies with whom we've had some interaction. So the point is, 
Most of these cases go nowhere, but they do still have a chilling effect because of the cost involved, as we all know, of litigation. So it's uh, it's, it's rough. Uh, Tina, what are your thoughts on it? So I agree with you, Rich. And I guess my biggest takeaway is um, not to post a review. I mean, you know, I, I just think that especially if your review is not positive, I have been in situations, whether it's a Yelp situation or whether it's buying merchandise from like an online merchandiser or doing it through a platform like Etsy, um, I, I have just chosen not to submit a review because it's just not worth it. Um, it isn't worth tangling with people. When I have issues with a merchant, I don't do it open and publicly. Um, so on Etsy, for example, if there's something that I bought that hasn't met the expectations that were um, that were really set by the merchant, then I deal with them offline because I know that these reviews are very impactful on their ability to stay open. And I've known a number of merchants over the years. I've heard stories about how they've had to open up as a new store just because of how catastrophic bad reviews are on their businesses. So I just try to take the high road. I give people great reviews when they deserve them. And I I don't give any reviews at all when they're poor. All right. That's one way to go. Ashley, do you give reviews? And now are you now not going to give reviews because you're scared that you might be sued? Um, I, I'm not scared of being sued because I that's what the you know the platform was for, but I am with Tina in the sense that like to an extent, I do make sure that I go through the route. I'm, I'm not really a big reviewer to begin with, but if and when I am going down the route where I'm going to reach out to the merchant directly and, and you know try to um, address it that way. But I can envision cases that would be very helpful where it's a bad situation, really bad customer service, or real, the promise is not at all what you're going to get. And I think it's helpful for people to know that. So I don't want to like discourage that when I have had to do it. I think I've done it maybe once or twice. Um, it probably did help others. And it's helped me when I've been looking at products and whether or not to purchase them because all good reviews uh, means that you, you think you're going to get a good product and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And in this case, Christina, the attorney representing the roofing company distinguished this lawsuit by saying uh, it was filed because the couple was trying to get something that they weren't entitled to. That was the purpose of the review. So the distinguishing factor here seems to be, at least if you believe the defendant, that they're not suing because their feelings were hurt, but because the intent of the review was to get something of benefit that they would not otherwise be entitled to. And there seems to be some logic to that. Again, as distinguished from simply being sued because you don't like the review. That, I don't think, will, you know, no court will hold that up because you have a First Amendment right to express yourself. But if you're doing it to get something, that's a different story. Yeah, and I, I that kind of brings me to my question about this is what they were, what were they basing their damages off of? $112,000 of damages they were claiming. Um, well, I actually think I guess, that could be, I think actually that, that, that's, that's one case where I think the damages are justifiable and they're probably light, right? I mean, you could imagine yeah. Tina's earlier point, if you get a bad review on Yelp, I mean, I I don't I don't ever hire someone who's got a one-star review. Probably none of us do. So if you get, you know, three one-star reviews, then the effect of your business is huge. And I think for a roofing company, a roof costs 10, 15 grand, right? That's not, there's not many roofs that you have to miss out on because someone gave you a bad review is to come up with $112,000. So- I think that's actually way low if the allegations are correct. 
the question is, you know, who knows if they're right or not, but yeah. No, I, uh, I think that, I think it's interesting. I do think it's a slippery slope because, um, you, we do, we do really value this mechanism of being able to rate, rate merchants online. I mean, I personally, I depend on that so much when choosing everything from physicians to contractors to restaurants. Um, so, I mean, we want to keep that integrity of that system, but we also don't want to, you know, injure businesses in the meantime. I, I just, uh, I don't know what the appropriate way to police that is. All right. So to all our uh, Uber listeners out there, know that no matter how crappy your car is and how much you're talking nonstop. Christina Martini will never give you a bad review, although that's anonymous. So the question is, does the Martini rule even apply when you're anonymous? Um, uh, not as much, uh-huh. not as much. But I also, I'm very, I try to be very balanced and tempered when I'm doing reviews like that, whether they're anonymous or not, because I understand that people's livelihood depends on these reviews. I mean, I, when I take an Uber, I do look to see how the driver's been rated. And I I think it's important. And I know that they actually review their passengers as well. If there's a a bottle of water in there, it's an automatic five-star review for me. A bottle of water clinches it all day, right? What about hand sanitizer from the guy that loves to sanitize his hands all day? Problem with that is then you're putting your hand on the pump that, you know, everyone else has pumps. So it kind of like defeats the whole purpose in my mind. But don't you then sanitize your hand after you pump? Eh, it doesn't matter. I've, I've, touched, <laughs> I've touched that pump that everyone else has touched. So, yeah, I'm not into the hand sanitizer. I got my own. You know, I have a whole bevy of I, on my person. I've usually got three or four hand sanitizers hidden away somewhere on my, <laughs> on my, my torso. Heart. Yeah, for sure. Joe? <laughs> Last word on reviews. Yes or uh, no? For well, no. Did, did you review? Do you review your mustache stylist? Yeah. See, we we already did this uh, before we recorded today, and I'm already a lot more self conscious about my facial hair because of it. So, it's absolutely uh, stupendous, as you know. We all love it. Yeah, that's not what you were saying before we uh, hit record today, though. But uh, no, I think this is a perfect topic to end on because you know to remind people to leave us five stars and a good review. Yes. Otherwise- Sue you for over a hundred thousand dollars. So as we long will as sue you for a bad review. We also have to end off with a huge shout out to our friend Joe Brand. Big news this week, Joe Brand. Can we share it with? I mean, at this point, we have to share. But can we share it? It's it's out there, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can. As we know, Tina, uh, our little show is a springboard to broadcasting greatness. We've launched or helped launch many broadcasting careers. Not that Joe didn't have an amazing broadcasting career before, but. Let's just put two and two together. Started with Legal Faceoff. Just a few months later, he is now the official pregame and postgame voice of the Chicago Blackhawks. Amazing, amazing promotion for Joe. It's awesome. In addition to all the other stuff he does, including uh, his work with the Kane County Cougars, he is now the first and last voice you'll hear when the Blackhawks begin their Stanley Cup run for 2022. Right, Joe? Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, kind of got thrown right in the fire right away. Uh, expansion draft, regular draft, free agency, and the Hawks are already making some pretty big moves. So it's uh, it's turned into a, a pretty exciting year in a matter of a week. But uh, but yes, of course, I you know was telling them how much this experience made me feel ready for a job like this. So I, I 
I owe a lot to you and Tina for giving me this opportunity, but no, it really is a blast being on this show. And, uh, now I, I appreciate you bringing it to mention. I, I don't like being in the spotlight very much, but, um, but thank you. I appreciate well, it. Hopefully you'll remember us, uh, on our podcast when you, when you keep moving on to greatness, Joe, congratulations. It's well yeah. deserved. We're very proud of you, Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you to Tina, to Rich, to Christina, Ashley, and all our other guests today. This has been another edition of the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Please feel free to like, subscribe, wherever you find your podcast. And yes, please leave us a review. We won't sue you no matter what you say. Thanks again. We'll see you next time here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. Go Hawks! Thank you. <laughs> it's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question, just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.